with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to do what we often do. We're going to get some things wrong? (laughs) Yes, we will do that for sure. (laughs) But we're also going to make wine relevant for a day that is notable not for being associated with wine. In this case, does wine work on Cinco de Mayo? I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we'll try to pair some wines with the foods around Cinco de Mayo. We have a little info on tequila. Don't drink it like wine, by the way. That's our first first advice. advice. Good advice. We have listener questions include one about learning to enjoy wine, like that's tough. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we ask, what goes better on Seco de Maya than a glass of wine? A bottle of nice Dos Equis beer. Okay, you're right. Second best on on Cinco de Mayo, (laughs) other than a glass of wine. You know, and since pushing wine is what we do, this is a wine show after all, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about wine and Cinco de Mayo margaritas. By the way, I need to tell you my margarita story. Okay. Uh, My wife's name is Margaret, so this better be a different margarita story. It's the drink that is so perfect on uh, on Cinco de Mayo and uh, one of my wife's favorite cocktails. Cool. We're in Wallala, which is this small town up on the coast on Highway 1. There's a biker bar. Right. Right between Sonoma and Mendocino County. Right at the borderline. and. Uh, biker bar, Highway One, lots of big, scary-looking Harleys outside. You Excellent. figure this is going to be a great place to get a shot of tequila. So we go I'm in. I'm thinking, Rick, you're going to walk in there feeling scared. Well, here's the thing. When I go into a bar like that, I figure that they look at me, and it's like kicking a cat. What's the point? <laughs> so nobody ever picks a fight with me because there's nothing there's in no, it. There's, there's nothing no in reward. It. They never get to tell their yeah, friends about that Yeah, it's like kicking out a guy. small, rolled-up piece of paper. There's just nothing. <laughs> so I think I'm always pretty safe. So this was actually uh, like two years ago. We go, I get a beer. Deborah gets a margarita. It's just not that great, you yeah. know? And we were up there again last summer, and we're looking at the bar, and we're going, Gee, and Deborah's kind of going, you know, I think I remember that margarita wasn't that good. I'm going, I probably just mixed it badly. Yeah. And so we went in again. It's it not was, that hard to make a good. You would think. And once again, not that great. This is, you know, it's like we're on vacation midday, just walking around. Right. No, again, not that great. Uh, so we go back. We're talking to our friends. We're saying, you know, that bar, it sh- the margaritas should be really good. Turns out, they make them with wine. Ah, they don't have the full yes, liquor license. They don't have a, a full biker license. bar that can't that they can't show. They have only beer and wine. Yeah, and what's well, so, for your finer grade of biker? Yeah, it is. Well, I'm thinking, being the wine pro that I am, I would of course instantly recognize that and then know these things. Uh, but I, if you're the com- real wine pro, would you have been able to tell which wine they use? Yes, it was a, a 67 Corton uh, Charlemagne yeah, from Bonneau de Martre. That's yeah. right, or not? Yeah. So in any <laughs> case, uh, there is a uh, there is proof that wine can uh, be mixed into. Cinco de Mayo, although in that case, very bad. Badly. Bad yes. idea. So so we thought maybe we should, um, We well, very quickly, just so folks know, I mean, everybody does know this. This is California after all, but for anyone listening outside, Cinco de Mayo is something that we celebrate here, but it is not Mexican Independence Day. That's actually uh, September 16th. This is the uh, a, a huge battle, and I guess it's sort of wine-related because it was a battle over the French. Right. Uh, and, uh, and where they started uh, what, what amounted to, well, actually, they lost that war. <laughs> but it was their big, it was their big win uh, yes. at the moment. Um, and uh, a couple of years later, they, they did kick the French out entirely. I think it was in, by 1867. This battle was in 1862. However, uh, we think that the, the, the real war was about the fact that they just think, thought that the French uh, 
the, the wines were too lean. They needed more acidity. And so they went to war with the French over the wine? That's what I'm thinking. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard anyway. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's it's just like we Americans now. We're we're at war with the French. (laughs) No, it's a lot more than that. Are we going to talk about wine at all today, Rick? Or what's the story here? All right. Well, let's talk about Mexicans' wine history, though, just for very briefly, because it is pretty impressive. You know, it goes back a ways. It goes back to the, certainly goes back to the 1500s when Cortez arrived. That's right. And in, in most of the colonial Mexico, and we'll talk about this in the history segment, but most of the wine grown and made in Mexico was made, and here's a phrase you may recognize from another country in North America, for religious or medicinal purposes only. Why, that sounds like prohibition. That's exactly like prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was yep. that was what was allowed in prohibition. If somebody doesn't, so, so there was a, some wine going on. But that's yeah. right. And one thing that people don't realize about the Mexican wine industry is uh, there are parts of Mexico that are really uh, people in the northern part of North America tend to think of the United States of Mexico as being a hot tropical climate. How can you grow grapes? But in Baja California, there are high mountains. Right. There are trout streams, um, and there are beautiful places to grow grapes and some actually pretty decent wines. I actually judged Mexico. Mexican wines at the Dallas Wine Competition. And it was this a year. category that was Mexican wines. It was wines. a category. Yeah. We had Chardonnays, we had Cabernets, we had some Tempranillos, and we gave out some medals. There were some well made wines. Yeah, there. and you think about Chardonnay, that's a, that's a grape that needs a little cooler region, and so there you go. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, my pal Mike Dunn, uh, who's a longtime uh, yes. writer, uh, has a house down there in, uh-huh. in Southern California, and it's sort of been relaying to me, um, I mean, Southern Mexico, and it's been relaying to me the industry's growth over the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, though, there are only about 6,000 acres planted, which is like one-tenth of Napa Valley. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's a small territory. Yeah, so yeah. you think about yeah, it. It's yeah. a very large country. Napa's a very small yep. place, and they have 10 times yep. the uh, The average consumption there is not very large either. It's only two glasses a day. That, well, that's barely enough to get you up through lunch, yeah, right? Well, and then, then it gets to tequila, which we're going to talk about a little Are bit we? later. Are we? You really want to talk about tequila? I today, like tequila. Don't you? Actually, I do. <laughs> I do. I like tequila, and I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about this too. Okay. You know, there is there's I there's a group there's groups all over, and I connected with one called the Tequila Aficionados, which is sort of a Northern California bunch yep. of crazed tequila fans who go down there all the time, uh-huh. and they talk about it the way you know guys like us talk about wine, which is yep. they love it, they love the details of it, they love the history, they love the people, yep. you know, they love yep. the families involved and it is a very family a lot of, lot of historic families involved yep all right so but here's the thing Cinco de Mayo you never mind the drunk college kids there's a lot of great food and great parties going around yes and just as we often do when wine is inappropriate let's do some pairings <laughs> No, we're going to pair food right now. Yeah, but let's actually let's caution. Let's talk a little bit about some of the principles in pairing wine with Mexican food. Okay, one of the ones that you mention often is careful about the alcohol and the spice. Right. Well, um, before before we even dive into that one, let's do one more warning, which is to talk about Mexican food is a little bit like talking about Chinese right. food. Right. Regional. It is a huge. vast culture with all sorts of different kinds of foods. And you've got Mayan-influenced culture in the South, and you've got Tex-Mex in the North, and you've got everything else in between, Veracruz, the seafood. So a lot of different things. But certainly one of the th- one of the elements. Here, here, I, I need to point question. out what we're talking about influences, by the way. Taco Bell doesn't count. Taco Bell does, does not, not count. count. Just no. So, yeah. um, but here, let me let me ask you a question, Rick. Name five food products that are indigenous to Mexico. Okay. Now hmm. we got gotcha. you. Huh? Well, I'm going to say the agave cactus, but that's okay, really— Okay, that's really not as much a food product as you might well, think. Well, I'm expanding the, the definition <laughs> of the expanding the category food. to include fermented beverages. 
Um, that's a really good question, you know, and the answer is, I got to say, I don't know. Okay. Well, maybe a lot of vegetables, but no, no, I know Mexican food is actually more vegetable based than we give it credit for. Certainly, so is. there are. I'm um, certainly some of the some of the peppers um, that pepper I is see. One. Are, Absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Absolutely. You got the peppers, yeah. and yeah, yeah, and yeah. those. The, if you taste chili peppers anywhere in the world, oh yeah, they started in Mexico. So all yeah. of those cuisines we think of as being. Oh boy, that Szechuan chilies are real. Yeah, you know what? The chilies in Szechuan food—they came from Mexico. Yeah. The really hot, spicy curries from India—if they're getting their spice from Chile, it's from Mexico. Huh? Chilies come from Mexico. Yeah. So a lot of the cuisines we think of as being very spicy, yeah. probably weren't so spicy before before before, before the Mexican Colombian trade. Yeah. exchange. Yeah, is what they absolutely. Call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you got chilies. What else is on the list there for you, Rick? I give what up. do you make tortillas out of, Rick? Well, corn. Well, though, corn I thought corn certainly... came over with the Spaniards. Oh, they came over to Europe from America. Oh, we've, I, I, I get that backwards all the time, don't I? Well, yes. It's not right, the only right, right. thing you get backwards, with Rick. Many it's things, one yes. of things. I have learned what <laughs> end of the wine bottle to pour, though. There you go. So I, I am learning. Corn yeah. is absolutely yeah. uh, American and certainly right. part of Mexico. Right, right, right. So let me toss a couple, a couple of others at you that are interesting. Um, the, the avocado is a, Yes, is indeed. In fact, the avocado. Yeah. Is a is an yeah, aguacatel is an Aztec word meaning, and this is going to surprise you, but it means testicle. Wow! And aguacatel is when you look at them, okay, fine, and then you're making yeah. your guacamole yeah. there. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me think. What else? You're you're be. on a roll now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking. What else is is the, do I'm, I'm thinking about the foods that I know most famous in Switzerland and Belgium and. Oh, yeah, because the mole sauce is the chocolate. Uh, chocolate. Yeah, right. Chocolate right, right, right. is absolutely originally Mexican yeah, food. Yeah. I, so I, we have a tendency to think of Mexican food as chili peppers, cheese, and shredded beef over a tortilla somewhere. But, man, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into this food, and that's why you can drink a lot of different things with it. Yeah. Well, I certainly was uh, going in a much uh, lower level of this, which was, uh, you know, stuff that shows up at Cinco de Mayo parties. Um, <laughs> which ones are you going to? Yeah, I, I go to the... I go to the block parties. You know, okay. The, the, ones, the, one, the ones that the bars throw. Those are, those are the ones I end up with. Um, <laughs> all right. So back to a couple of things to think about. We talk about spice and alcohol. Spice. Yeah, that, that always... Yep. And, 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 uh, so, you know, not, not your, nice, your night for a big Cabernet. That's right. You yeah. don't want big, heavy, high-alcohol yeah. wines with Mexican food, most Mexican food. Yeah. And one of the things that, that for me, has always sort of worked with is, is fruitier wines, even decent acidity. You know, I've, I yes. have found Sauvignon Blancs go really well with a lot of the Mexican food that yep. I like. I um, like lower-alcohol wines, yeah. so I'm oh, looking yeah. at things like Vino Verde from Portugal, uh, particularly if we're having seafood uh, Veracruz. You know, where you got this almost a ceviche kind of sauce in the, with the Veracruz. And then um, I like Prosecco. Well, you know, that we bubbly. You, you and it's, I always joke Prosecco that, is just, that bubbly is the beer of Beer made wine. from grapes. Yeah, that's and right. It does work. And the other thing that sometimes works, although I say be a little careful with this, and I'm not a huge, huge fan of it, that sweet cuts the spice. But with some of the foods that you're eating, I don't know that it's appropriate. It, it works better with sometimes with some of the Asian Cuisines because there's a sweetness to the Asian cuisines uh -huh, as well, uh -huh. and a little less so into some of the, the the Mexican cuisines. Yep. So let's go through a couple of these while we have a few minutes left. Okay. Here still, you still want to? Okay. Just a couple. So we okay. since we were talking, you're still waiting for me to say tequila. I think. Uh, yes. Since we were talking <laughs> about um, chocolate, 
How about uh, yes. a mole, like a chicken mole? What would you be pairing your chicken mole? Yeah, and I got to tell you, I, mole is just one of, if you have not had a mole sauce, if you live somewhere where you've not experienced this, man, have you missed something. Yeah, what a delicious, yeah. rich. done And done correctly. It's sometimes done badly. All it is is just this rich, chocolatey sauce. But if you do it correctly. And it doesn't actually li- have to include chocolate. Yeah, mole but is, the is, layers of spice. Layers absolutely, of spice, absolutely. layers of, yeah. Um, and not necessarily always that spicy. Right. Um, right. But there's a smokiness to it sometimes mm-hmm. to mole. And, and you know, one of the things you might try is not a big but a lighter style Syrah. Yeah, absolutely. I like that a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. A Merlot for me goes well too, but, you know. Uh-huh. It's, it's, for the same reason. Yeah, for the same yep. reason. And, and Spanish Tempranillos as well. Now, that's yep. actually an answer in a lot of cases because the way Spain makes its Tempranillos, they spend some time in oak, they get softened Particularly and Particularly the, yeah. not the jovens, but the what they what they are now calling the robles and the reservas, which spend yes. some time in oak. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then, of course, you got to, if you want to stay, if you want to stay on this side of the world, in this hemisphere, the other thing to look at would be Chilean. Or Argentine, Malbec, Carmenier, yeah. also yeah. not bad choices for some of these foods. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to twist around those wines, the Malbec uh, uh, in particular. You know, for some of the other kinds of Mexican foods that that are little that we think of that are not Taco Bell style foods. You know, the the ribs and the red sauces and and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. some of the meats that that end up getting sautéed and cooked for a while. They that's it's not all that far from some of the Argentinian techniques, and Malbec works terrific with those as well. Although I'm going to go back to one of my rules about matching food and wine, which is the colors should match. So if you're having enchiladas and it's in a red sauce, go for red wine. But if you're having enchiladas in a green sauce, eh, to me... There's just a, and I admit it has nothing to do with flavor. It's just the color. I want to have something white with the green sauce. No, I'm matching the wine color, not the bottle color, right? Yeah. Because a lot of times I try the bottle cover, and it the, comes no, out weird. It turns, you know? out, turns out that what's inside the bottle is a different color uh, than the glass. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. I've brought this up a few times, but speaking of chicken enchilada, there's one of the restaurants that I really like that has a chicken enchilada special, and it's on the milder side. It's more in the green style, and Sauvignon Blanc is such a perfect pairing with that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Why so, do we do this show directly before lunch? I know. I'm already hungry. I'm it's, starving. we, we got to start recording later, I think, is what we're going to do. starving. Yeah. Uh, and then well, there's... I, I know what kind of food we're going for for lunch. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> and then uh, the, you know that there's the the sort of the classic the you know tacos and burritos which you know shows show especially on party platters. You know, you got the small yep. taco and you've got the yep. little baby burrito kind of thing showing up. And uh, uh, you know, the first advice is always what's inside it. That that's a huge piece of it. If it is. But I look at that as party food. I look at it as hard to eat. It's going to crunch. It's going to crackle. It's going to splatter down your face. And that's where you pour. Why is that different from any other? Oh, that's me we're talking about. I'm sorry. That's the <laughs> and that's why you're going to pour a nice, foamy, bubbly all over your face as yes. you drink it down and wash all that stuff off your face and down your throat and bubbly all the way for me. I agree with you entirely. Uh, bu- bubbly is, is absolutely the way to go. And if that doesn't work, a really nice beer. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, I hope that was a little bit of help. Probably not. Uh, Don't worry. We will continue (laughs) to confuse you as we take some questions, which is coming up next. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It is time to take a few questions. If you'd like to be one of those folks that asks us a question, 
you can go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Or you can look for us on iTunes, by the way. You can subscribe for free with a click. If you're new to us and you're wondering uh, what qualifies us to be giving history lessons about Mexico. Um, just about nothing no, at all. Nothing at all, actually. Um, uh, we both traveled there. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to trust us less when you hear my, mar- my, my story, when you heard my story about margaritas. Margaritas, well, that's but right. But surprisingly... Paul is a respected industry pro, uh, and he knows lots of folks. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches many places, the Napa Valley College, Culinary Institute of America, as two of them. And uh, he's a patient man with me. Well, I don't have to be that patient because when you get it wrong, Rick, at least you're really amusing. (laughs) And and that must explain how you got to be a best-selling New York Times author um, writing about wine. So go figure. You, you have written about television and other things. Now you're writing about wine, and it, you, you make it sound at times as if you almost know something. It's a complete mirage. What? That, that's a mark of a good writer. Yeah, that's true. All right. Our first question comes from Heather Castillo in Ronald Park. And, and how it, nice it's Castillo it from is. Mexico. Well, yeah, it Hispanic is. And actually, I, this was a question that we got a few weeks ago, and I saved it for our Cinco de Mayo show. Great. Um, and, and I like her question, and I know these glasses that she's talking about, and I, I, okay. I actually sort of feel for her. She says, my parents came back from a trip to Mexico with those really beautiful, really thick kind of painted glasses that are more like goblets than wine glasses. Goblets, yeah. I've been trying to tell them they probably aren't best for making the wine taste great, and they don't care. Advice? Leave your parents alone, Heather. Well, I say two things. I say try to get them to pour something else into those glasses. and then You want a margarita in those yes, glasses, don't you? Yes, they're really good you for margaritas. You want tequila in those glasses. There you go. You know, um, it is true that if you and I were judging the California State Fair, which we frequently do, or some of these other wine competitions, we would like a classic glass that has a little more of a tulip shape, a little more bent in at the top to capture more of the aroma. And we'd like it to be a delicate, clear crystal so we can see the color and all the rest. But you know what? Sometimes you just want a glass of wine and those goblets are beautiful. Uh, Yeah, maybe at my house we'd use them for water instead of wine. But if your parents want to serve wine in those things, look, wine got drunk out of ceramic goblets probably for 5,000 years before anybody put it into a piece of glass. So I say let your parents enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah, really that's the answer. Uh, and uh, I just try not to get them to pour really good stuff in them. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, yeah, wait. but I mean, I, I love those glasses. Yeah. I, I love the feel of them. You just need to remember that instead of drinking wine in America or in Europe in the year 2015, you need to think this is what would have been a wine, a typical wine glass of the year 1000, and you're drinking out of a goblet, and who knows, the, you know, in the, in the, the court jester may appear at any moment, and the show could get even better. Yeah, and you know, there's this other part of it, too, that you and I talk about a lot, that, you know, wine is just the thing of joy. It's supposed to be fun, and, yes. you know, if the glasses are pretty, it kind of makes the wine more fun. If you're sitting outside, it makes the wine more fun. If your parents are loving the glasses, it makes the wine more fun. However, if you would prefer to drink out of another glass, say, you know, mom and dad, I'm going to save those glasses for you because I'm afraid I might break one. So, and, no, uh, I got a solution for Heather. Is Heather? What Heather needs to do is propose endless 
numbers of toasts at her mom and dad's house with those glasses. And, you know, you know it's going to happen after a while. Sooner or later, somebody's going to whack two of those together yeah. too hard, and they're going to have two fewer glasses, and then Heather gets to drink out of what yeah, she wants. Well, yours is far more evil than mine, but... <laughs> I, but effective. But it is effective. effective. It is. It is, it is indeed. Um, this next one is from Tiffany Wood in Minneapolis, and I suspect she was made to listen to us by my friend Bill Ward, who is the wine columnist for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. A nice man. A very nice man. And Bill, by the way, if she wasn't recruited by you and you're not recruiting us people, would you get on it? Um, exactly. <laughs> all right. Her, I like your question. I keep seeing books and stories about how to enjoy wine. Is it really that hard? Yes. You need to read books in order to jo- enjoy wine because wine is really complicated. And only after you've read 10 books can you begin. Wait. I- Yes, and if you can't recite all a 10,000 grape varietals backwards in alphabetical order, right. it just isn't the same. That's right. No, if you lift up a glass of wine and you smell it and it tastes it and it's good and it brings a smile to your face, you're enjoying wine and you don't need to read a book to know how to do that. Yeah, you know, we did a show not so long ago about how to talk like a pro, which is slightly different, but it's slightly the same thing, which yep. is that, you know, if you are not some kind of expert on wine, you're not an expert. We're not, as you just heard, Paul and I are clearly not experts on Mexican food, but we do like it, you know. You you don't need to know anything to like it. If you're right. interested in it, you can learn more. There's nothing wrong with learning more, and that's, that's actually right. the joy. Enjoying wine is to discover things when you want to, but you don't need somebody right. to tell you. And the problem is, these are often some the, written. Some of the joy of wine is pouring it down your throat, tasting it, and saying that tastes really good, and it makes me feel good too. Yeah, oddly enough, that's how it works. The guys it, who invented wine, Rick. They didn't have books. Yeah. The guys who invented Rhine were Ugg and Mug in the forest, and they picked up the grapes, and the grapes fermented in the berries, and they ate the grapes, and they said, Ugg. And the other one said, Mug, and they were happy, and they didn't need any books, and yet well, that they are the father and mother of the wine industry throughout the world. Well, I think Mug used to give Ugg a, a lot of grief for not being able <laughs> to identify the varietal. <laughs> You're right. And, you know, the, the problem also is is that, you know, and this is not always true. I, I do know one of the books about, like, like how to love wine or what it is, and it is actually it's the, this Eric Asimov's yes, New York Times. Yes, How I Learned to Love Wine. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a it's a really, a, it is a really nice exploration for somebody who already knows wine. Right. So, you know, that's the thing. You need to right. need to say, decide where you are. All right. We have a few more questions coming up in the second half of the show. Uh, but that is it for now. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And when we come back, we'll have some really bad wine writing for you. Oh, boy. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We always dance when we hear that music, and we probably shouldn't because it's the most painful part of our show, which is the bad wine writing. This is our Mexican wine version. So these are actually reviews of Mexican wines. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I got one that will confuse the heck out of you. All righty. Here's a guy who says, This is an unusual rendition of Syrah, neither like the Aussie style or the French. It embraces many elements and styles. Its flavors intermingle with a semi-rusticness that's difficult to describe. 
Well, yeah, because he didn't describe it. Because he didn't describe it. What is he doing there? I have there? no idea what He's that He's a writer. You're like. supposed to say something. He didn't yeah, say anything except, I'm confused. Yes, and it's not anything. That's what he said. So don't <laughs> don't drink that wine. Well, my wine goes in the other direction of a guy who over-described, and I like this last part of it. This okay, wine's, good. wine's voluptuous aroma gives way to a combination of black cherry, raspberry, plum, darker fruit, pepper, black currant, cassis, wild strawberries, combining, and this is the part where it gets good, an aristocracy of structure and a flamboyance of flavor. Oh. Oh, man. And he then went... this. And then the last part. Like your last boyfriend, girlfriend. Tasty in the beginning, but a little sharp at the end. <laughs> well, that's a funny line. That is a funny that line. That is a funny line. Yes, if it wasn't for the rest of it. Yeah. You know, the aristocracy of structure and the flamboyance, flamboyance of, of flavor. Flavor. flavor and Makes the, you want to salute, doesn't it? Yes, and the goofiness of writing what that is. Holy and that, mackerel. That is, see, and that's the thing. Both of those are the examples. Well, yours in particular of, of somebody says nothing. And mine's the example of somebody who says too much and and yeah. well, I like he's got black cherries, plum, black currant, and then darker fruit. Yes. I want to know what's darker than black cherries, plums, and black and black really currant. dark black cherries. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay, you are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. Don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free. We will have a lot more fun stuff, including the history of tequila, when we come back for the second half of the show. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Actually, we probably should have had Spanish music to a to, mariachi band. Yeah, with trumpet should something have been the to, to start our his, Those are moment. great horn sections those guys have. Yeah, yeah, that's it's true. That's true. Maybe we'll move that around. That <laughs> does mean, though, it is time for our history moment of the week. And since we are south of the border, talking about a little bit about Cinco de Mayo kind of issues, since we are around that holiday, Paul, what do you got? I have a little bit of historia, as we say in Spanish. Uh-huh. When Hernán Cortés, you remember the man who theoretically conquered Mexico, although basically what he did was— Sneaked around. He organized a revolt amongst a number of the local um, peoples that surrounded the Aztecs and managed to come out more or less kind of on top at the end of it and, all. And lied and cheated a little bit uh, oh, along yeah, the way. Hey, yeah. this is—you know, those were the days. Yeah. Um, but one of the things he insisted, he encouraged every one of his conquistadores to plant 100 grapevines in Mexico because he felt that that would add fruitfulness to the land, and then they could each produce their own wine, and it would make everybody happy. But? But the king of Spain basically said, I don't think so. And the king of Spain said this for a very interesting reason. He was paid a tax on every liter of wine produced in Spain. In he Spain. Didn't, he didn't want any competition. That's right. So he only allowed church and medicinal wines to be made in Mexico and everything else they had to import from Spain, which meant that he got paid. The The Franciscan fathers, for example, Junipero Serra and that group, they grew wine and Mexicans all drank beer. Yep. Well, they weren't going to pay the taxes to get the wine. And they drank the forerunner of what became tequila. Yes, they did. And tequila was uh, it I is, thought you might want to talk about tequila yeah, that's, today, that right? Yeah, that is definitely my 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 <laughs> my little history moment. You know, tequila goes way back um, and the Aztecs made a fermented drink from the the agave plant that's from, right. from the sap of the agave plant. By the way, I need to say agave is not a cactus. It is a succulent. 
That's good to know. So, I, that's really good to know because I've been worried about that for some well, time. Well, lots of people talk about the agave cactus plant. And, I you see. know, all cacti are succulents, but not all succulents are cacti. Wait, let me write this down. So it's like all <laughs> berries are fruit, but not all fruit are berries. Yeah, and some people are just nuts. Go yeah. ahead. Go on with <laughs> N- your No, nuts are not a fruit <laughs> or, or a succulent. <laughs> okay. So tequila. Oh, around for uh, around for <laughs> centuries, and when the conquistadores came, they they saw what the Aztecs were doing and and started doing that themselves. And one of the reasons why they could do this was there was no tax that needed to be sent back east. That's right. So they um, that's right. Uh, and this it was mostly around what the city wasn't of tequila actually hadn't be, didn't become a city for another hundred years, but it was in that region was where it was made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what was it? What part of this was, was did the Spanish bring? Because the Mexican, the, the the indigenous peoples of Mexico already had the fermented beverage from the agave, and the Spanish brought. They brought well. They brought the barrels and the distillation and the distillation, right? And the distillation, of course, came from the Arabs, which had lived in Spain for eight hundred years. The Arabs actually. Int- uh, invented distillation for alcoholic beverages. Yes, and then as they also so tequila is a multicultural beverage. Yes, and although uh, well, we, we, like need, we need to do Spain another time because the the but the Arabs also had a culture that didn't drink. So there was it was theoretically and theoretically right theoretically right. right, right. Uh, in any case, uh, it, it was uh, the, around 1600 is when um, they actually started. Be able to produce this at some mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. some levels, and um, and they pretty much got it down now. They've been at it for four hundred and fifteen years, and they pretty much have yeah. it down now. And you know, they did figure out how to tax it. By the way, although it was it was done by the <laughs> colonial government, who, government right. who was appointed by Spain and did send some money back. A couple of names you also might know: Jose Antonio Cuervo uh-huh. received the rights to cultivate cultivate a parcel of land um, from the King of Spain in seventeen fifty eight, and then some of his profits were sent back to Spain. Did he send them back as the crow flies? Because, of course, cuervo means crow in Spanish. I suspect he sent them back as the ship sailed. I see. Okay. Um, um, And it really didn't become a big deal until after, as we talked about earlier, the Mexican independence, 1821, because then Spanish products were much more difficult to get. Right. And and so then Mexican products, both internally and throughout North America, um, became a little more valuable. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. another name that we know is Don Zenobia Salza. He was the first to export tequila to the U.S. That was 1873, uh-huh. and from there, frat parties were born. Exactly right. Exactly right. Excellent. Okay. That was a that was a succulent, not a cactus little story. Yes, that you told it, yes, us. it was. Uh, you are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come back, we will have more questions from listeners, and they won't be as succulent as all of the others. <laughs> and next week, by the way, those listeners who are asking questions could be you. Could be you. Stay with us. to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We're going back to our mail pouch. We have been doing this now for months and months without being able to decide what to call it. So um, I'm sure there is probably a Spanish word for mailbag. We should have a contest. We should ask our listener. Name our mail thing. That's right. Suggest names for our mailbag. Yes. Not for us, by the way. (laughs) The names that are (laughs) often... a different kind of bag they'd want to use for us. The names suggested for us are often not complimentary, (laughs) to say the least. All right. uh, We do have another question that I had been saving up, by the way, because it came in as we were talking about the rules for... In Europe, some of the wine regions have more specific rules for growing. Absolutely. So Eric Hyden Vallejo asks, Uh what are the rules for tequila? I've heard it's like wine and has to be grown in certain places. 
Okay, so first rule for tequila, Eric, is a glass of water for every shot of tequila you drink. <laughs> never more than two in an hour, never more than three in a night. Eat food, and when you start forgetting what the rules are, stop drinking the tequila. I do remember this from my college days a couple of centuries <laughs> a, a ago. Very, yes. One of the very few things you may yes, still remember true. from your college and, days. And we used to say, because we were idiots, but then it was really that we drank too much, that tequila wasn't an alcohol, it was a drug. I see. And really, it was the reason why it was a drug was because it was too easy to drink, a lot of it. So, Eric, <laughs> yeah, Paul's advice isn't bad. Um, but there are a couple. You know, wine, we say, like, if it's going to be a varietal, it needs to be 75% Cabernet, 75% Cabernet in, in right. California. Only 51% must be from that little agave plant. It's a blue agave plant. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, it's a succulent, as we all know, but not a cactus. It can only produce in the state of Jalisco. Which is that area in sort of central Baja, and it is all uh, of central Mexico, central Mexico, not, I'm sorry, not central, central Baja. Not Baja, central Mexico, right, right. Yeah, um, and it is uh, much of it is surrounding the city of Tequila. Although there are a couple of small states outside of Jalisco that also have small tequila, and there are a couple of names that come up that tell you what they are, and and it's really about how long they've been aged. Right. So Blanco, which is most of what we drink, especially when we're making margaritas, which um, yes. or unless we're making it out of wine. Um, is the clear stuff. In which case, Rick will not be coming to your house. Yes, and it's bottled right after it's distilled. Can't be aged more than two months. Then Reposado, which is another one that actually comes up a lot, and a lot of the more expensive tequilas that people sip are the Reposado, which is two months but less than a year. And Reposado, just for those of you who are Spanish language fans, comes from the same word as a repose. It means it has rested for a bit. It has been sleeping. That's right. Um, then the Añejo is at least a year in oak barrels. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's the really expensive sipping stuff. Although you don't actually see this. Sometimes you have Añejos that are extra Añejos that are at least mm-hmm. three years. And this is a new category established like 2006. A lot of the traditionalists that have laid their Añejos down for years, a handful of years, more than just the, the one or two or three, and they just don't label it that way. But, right. Um, and again, Añejo comes from the Spanish word año, which means year. So it's been aged for yeah. years. And, you know, I wanted to, I was talking about this, this group called the Tequila Aficionados, and I actually did a story on one of their tastings a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I remembered one of the lines that one of the guys said was that everybody's got a tequila story that starts something like, oh, man, there was that one time in college. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and he says, actually, you didn't have a bad experience with tequila. You had an experience with bad tequila. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you a question because the tradition in America is older is better in terms of of distilled spirits. Right. But I actually find some of the most fascinating, interesting, and delicious tequilas to be those absolute blancos, very fresh. You have that real aromatic character of the agave in them. Yes. Well, you know, that was a really interesting thing when I did that tasting with these guys. And I really, we, we tasted through a bunch. Um, and like with I'm wine. I'm surprised you, you can need, remember you, it. Like, yeah, well, you need to spit. Yeah. Uh, just like with wine. Yeah. Um, for me, I thought the ones that I was least enamored by, though I also understand why this would be something you would sell in a restaurant as, a, as sort of a sipping whiskey or sipping liquor after a meal, which is the Añejas. But I agree with you, the, the Blancos and the Reposados. And I thought there was almost a fruitiness to some of them. And, and you did get these layers to it that we don't think about with tequila, but mm-hmm. the flavors mm-hmm. and some of the you brighter know, ones. You know, I still can't get over an image of Lee 
Lee Van Cliff and John Wayne walking down to you clowns over there tasting and spitting tequila and saying, you know, boys, <laughs> real men don't spit tequila on my floor. Yes. And at that point, you had all been leaving the bar pretty quickly. Well, yes. Uh, unfortunately, real men had to drive home. And so <laughs> that's why I usually keep you around, Paul. You always get less drunk than me. So, no. All right. Uh, but yes, it is a um, it is a great sport, and and you know for um, for folks who haven't really tried some of the some of the higher end tequilas, it really is something worth trying. They are yeah. some of them are spectacularly interesting and spectacularly expensive. And spectacularly this is where you expensive. need an uncle yeah. who yeah. yeah yes that's yeah. true. When your uncle's coming to visit, make him get you tequila. <laughs> um, our next comes from Janine Liu in San Francisco. Excellent. The guy at the tasting room kept talking about RS. My boyfriend and I just nodded. I kept elbow him to, him to ask, but he ignored me. What's RS? Doesn't matter. Also, do you have this? I like this. Also, do you have any exercises so my elbowing will hurt more? <laughs> oh, I like Janine. That's a good yes. line there. All right, yeah. well, well, Janine, I can come up with something right off the bat. What you do is you stand um, with the door. If you're going to use your right elbow, you stand against an open doorway and against the door with that elbow and do isometric sorts of exercises. Do them both with your elbow in and your elbow extended. Count to 10. Relax. Count to 10. Now, so I, think, I, think I think your shoulder will get wrong a lot stronger. There, because I think the problem is Janine is probably a petite person elbowing a somewhat larger person. And when the elbow hits the larger person, most of the impact and the, the mass of the little person is moved to the side. So what she needs to do is brace herself with her left arm against a wall, the bar, or something else. And then when she throws that ah, elbow, there's ah, no give yeah, in it. Yeah. That'll get his attention. There you go. And make sure you don't hit his arm. You're going right for the ribs. Oh, yeah, you go want up, the ribs. Up, yeah, you want, right, you don't want that lower part. You want to get him right in the ribs. And even maybe yeah. if you can, a little bit in the back near the kidneys, yeah. I think, is a good yes. spot to hit If him. that doesn't work, whack him with your purse. <laughs> <laughs> what was the wine question? Yeah, there was something in there. <laughs> but we really like the violent question oh, better. Oh, so. that's a sweet, that's a good one. All right. She was asking what What's RS? RS. And that's doesn't right. matter. And you know, that's the kind of that is very classic tasting room conversation. You know, we're we're yes. we're for the, the, the well intentioned tasting room person forgets who they're talking to, which is somebody who doesn't live in wine country. Right, because RS actually stands for residual sugar. Or yeah, and well, No, that's what it stands okay. for, right? Don't, don't be smart, <laughs> no, Alex. I, was, I had now. a whole bunch of really bad answers for it. Yes. <laughs> residual sugar. And it goes back to how wine is made. Because yeast eats the sugar in the grape. If it eats all the sugar in the grape, the wine is perfectly dry and there is no sugar left over, a.k.a. also known as, see, I'm not doing what the taste room guy did. See, I'm explaining the acronyms I'm using. <laughs> what does a.k.a. stand for? Also known okay, as. Okay, just want to make sure. Residual sugar, because it's sugar that's left over by the yeast that didn't eat it right. during the fermentation process. It's all it means. And what they're really saying, it's a very, very wine-snobby, polite way to say, don't you think this wine's a little sweet? Right. Now, they could say, don't you think this wine's a little sweet? But if you said that, then the guy behind the tasting bar would say, well, the RS is 0 0.93. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so you still and what is, you and, still got to deal with the same jerk one way or the other. Right, yes. But basically what they're saying is they're—, they're um, and, you know, uh, but I, we also have—Paul and I uh, have give this advice a lot, by the way. When a tasting room person says something that you don't understand, you should ask them. Elbow Any, him in the ribs. Elbow him in the ribs. And say, I'm sorry, I, I don't, I don't, I live in San Francisco. Um, uh, if you want to know how to take the 14 mission to the 28 Geneva, that's fine. But in, in the case here, uh, I Excellent. would like to know what RS stands for. Right. 
Yeah. Exactly right. And, and you know, exactly right. Right. So RS is the sugar that's left over after fermentation. Many wines are completely dry. Almost no fermentation, just by the way, is completely 100% effective. Almost all fermentation leaves a tiny little bit of sugar in the wine. But the real question is some winemakers, if you chill the wine down or do some other things, it'll slow the fermentation, maybe stop it. So what they're really talking about is there's still some sugar left in the wine. Yes. Um, and, you know, we've, I think we've gotten this question in the past, and I know we get it often, which is can you add sugar to wine? And the answer is no, but sort of. Yeah, not really in California. It's very difficult to do in California. But you can do it with a kind of a grape concentrate that you will allow add- you concentrated grape juice to wine. Right. So sometimes right. wines are sweetened up a bit. Right. And, you know, the thing about uh, uh, residual sugar or the sweetness in wine is, you know... No, I'm sorry, Rick. We in the wine biz call that RS. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm giving I'm giving away my outsiderness. That's right. You're acting yes. like a yes. noob instead oh, of a dude. I know where the 14 Mission goes, though. <laughs> I used to live off, right off of it. That's why. Uh, the uh, In any case, the, uh, uh, you know, we don't really perceive sugar until it gets over 1%. About 1%. Yeah. That's right. and, and sometimes you you won't perceive it then. It may make the wine taste a little rounder, you know. Right. So you you won't actually be perceiving sweet. If you think it. about sugar, sugar actually is it's a solid, not a liquid. And if you've got a little extra solid in your liquid, it makes the liquid seem a little thicker. And wine, sugar does that for wine. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you think about what you do that when you put some extra sugar into, say, lemonade, um, uh-huh. it kind of makes it rounds it out. Yep. Okay. So Janine, uh, we hope we've helped you with the elbowing matter, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. All right. That's a great question. It is. It is. This next one comes from Jan Sweeney in Sacramento. Uh, Jan is one of our regular listeners. Both Jan and her husband, Pat, do listen. I know that because I know them, and they have told me that um, they think we're a couple of knuckleheads. Did they they tell you when we're wrong? Well, often, yes. Um, (laughs) No. They say they enjoy the show, but I think it's only because they're my friends. Um, Jan's is a good one, though. Is red better for your health than white? Mmm. So first of all, every time we talk about wine and health, we need to say that you are an individual, your particular health concerns are individual, and you need to talk to your doctor and not a couple of knuckleheads on the radio about your health care. Yeah, I need to say it even more clearly. Do not take medical advice from us. (laughs) (laughs) Also, don't take financial advice. (laughs) Neither one of those. Or any other kind of advice. So everything that we're about to tell you (laughs) is not to be construed as advice. Right. This might be what we think. But uh, there are relatively few chemical differences. The one difference you'll see is that red wines sometimes have very slightly higher alcohols. They have slightly higher anthocyanins, which are phenolics, which are tannins, which are antioxidants. So there is an element of wine that is higher in antioxidants. Red wines will have more of that than whites. But in general, wine, the, the, the distinctions that the medical field makes these days, I think, are smaller and smaller between red and white wine and more between a couple of glasses of wine a day and no wine at all or too much wine. Well, and the, the, this, a lot of the studies get done on the grape skins. And so reds certainly do have more contact with the grape skins. So there are right. some, but there are other things in there as well. Um, and, and on the flip side... Whites tend to be a little lower alcohol. Yes. And so alcohol is not considered to be a great thing for you. Um, small and amounts in moderation. Maybe, but so— and, then, and, and whites, as a result, are also, as as Rick knows, because he's so careful about his weight, slightly lower in calories it's true. often. We have done that. 
We've talked about that. We've mm-hmm. got the numbers. We will do it again for you sometime soon. May I say you're looking particularly svelte today? Well, thank you. I had a white wine last night. <laughs> that, that is why. Um, so, but fundamentally, uh, don't sweat it. And you know, if you uh, do, if you're not sure and you want to get some of the health benefits, eat a couple of grapes. There you go. Yeah. Chew, you go. chew the, or, chew the or, skins. Or, or uh, pomegranate juice. Um, okay. Uh, so we do have time for one more question. Great. This is from Glenn McGowan in Oakland. He says, I never get the flavors that are on the tasting notes in a tasting room. Is that them or me? Do I care? So I got to I got I know bring, the answer to the last question. Well, you, yeah, that's an easy one. I know you, well, no, you do not. Um, you don't care. Yeah, you know, we, we have talked about this before. There was a study done, in, and if I remember from whom it was, uh, our friends at the Cornell School of Business Administration. Or hospitality. Hospitality, yeah. Right. Um, and yeah. I love their studies. As you know, I'm a study guy. Yes, I you're love a study studies. guy. But I do, I, I scour. If only some of those stuck, right? I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't learn anything from them. I just read them. But um, I do scour their website because there's always some fun stuff coming out and i this one was one i really liked which was that they they looked at they took uh taste rooms both in new york in in the fring lakes district and in california right and um right. and they used uh similar days the same tape the same wineries and with and without tasting notes right uniformly tasting notes hurt sales that's right and and my favorite study is by Professor Brochet in Bordeaux, who oh, is see, an yeah, absolute I, I drop Cornell, you drop some French name. Absolutely okay. right. Okay. And Brochet actually gave the same wine to a group of wine experts with one slight difference. In one of them, he had added food coloring so that one of them was a red wine and one of them was a white oh, wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, they described the white wine as having aromas of white flowers and delicate melon and peach and pear and apple. And the red wine had rich red fruits like strawberries and, and uh, plums and cassis, and it was the same wine. So, first of all, he's absolutely right to not care about this. The other thing is, and, and Rick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this on one of our shows. I'm going to bring in. Two wine, you know our our bad wine writing segment. Oh, I'm going to bring in two reviews (laughs) of the same wine. Oh yeah. Oh, we've got we've got I've you know we run across these now and then. I'm going to bring in two reviews of the same wine, and you're going to listen to them and tell me what they have in common. And the answer is. Nothing, because this kind of stuff is so subjective so often. Yeah, we have in the past seen that, too. The winemaker and the critic notes are that massive. Yes. You know, one of the re- there's many reasons for this, and one of them is, is that, you know, everybody's taste buds are like their fingerprints. They're completely individual. They are, you know, that— that You don't have to coat them with— Ink though, and smear them on a no, piece I've of paper. No, I've tried that. Actually, it makes police. for a nice pattern, but then things taste like ink for a while. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, you know, your uh, the the tongue map does not exist. I think we've been through that a few times. You know, our uh, the Hildegard Heyman, the um, the head of sensory evaluation at UC Davis, and, and generally considered the uh, the leading sensory evaluation scientist in America or in the world, um, has uh, this is what she says about about uh, the tongue map. Total crap. Does she know? He's, well, that's a highly that's a quote. valued scientific that is opinion a quote. right yes, there. Yes, totally quote. She says it's actually— Does she say that about our show, yeah, too? No. <laughs> that just uses that kind of word. It's, it's, it's a little, she's a little more harsh. Yeah. She's a little uh, harsh yeah. on us. Um, is, uh, she says it's a bad interpretation of bad research, and unfortunately it was, it was taught in grade schools for decades. Absolutely. But, um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so the answer is don't pay attention. One of the things that, that I know—I'm I, sure you've had these conversations with folks, too, that they like to try to see if they can get the flavor in 
in the tasting notes. Right. And some of that is that 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 flavors are um, it's both a creature of suggestion and focus. Yes. And so yes. you know uh, well, your your great friend uh, Tim, Tim Geyser, Geyser yeah Geyser, a, he talks about how you, how that works. He does a wonderful experiment where he actually asks you to try to find a flavor in it, and then he actually and asks move you it, to move it out of the way. Take that flavor and yeah. pretend that you're moving it off to the and yeah. see what else do you we see will, there. We will we gonna need to bring him in we'll and talk about that because that's He'll a great concept. He's a, he's a great guy. Yeah. But some of that is if you somebody says you know uh, are you tasting apples in that Chardonnay and now and you start is, looking for it. No, I'm tasting wine. Yeah. Have you got apples in your Chardonnay? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I taste Chardonnay in my apples, which is a little weird. Okay. Well, so, and anyway, Glenn, don't worry about it. Don't worry about Just it. Just enjoy yourself. Don't worry about yeah. it. And if you want to, read them afterwards. There um, you go. Yeah. Okay. That's it for questions for this week's show. We will have uh, uh, more next week. If you'd like to ask us a question, be one of those people. Go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Coming up, we will uh, have a, actually, we've got a word for you. This is, this is a word. I got a word for you. Too, yes, Rick. well, uh, yes, it's along the lines of Hildegard Heyman. Hildegard um, Heyman. Yes, had but, it right. Yes, since we did a food and wine pairing earlier in the show, we will close with uh, a wine word. We will be right back. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our occasional feature is up next, the wine word of the week. And I guess it's really not of the week because we only do it every couple of weeks. But nonetheless. It's we, a good alliteration. Uh, we like alliteration. Word of the week. We and are, if you say it really fast, it sounds like wacky wabbit. Yes. Well, this should have alliterated, but it isn't. And it's the word Burgundian. Burgundian, as in coming from Burgundy. Yes. yes. Except when it comes up, it's usually some wine snob talking about R.S., no, actually what it is is a California winemaker saying, my wine doesn't taste like all the other guys' wines around here, so I'm going to say it's Burgundian because it sure doesn't taste like California. Something went wrong, so we'll call it Burgundian. Yeah, it's kind of a wine snobby way of saying, especially when you're talking about Pinot Noir because Burgundy and, and Pinot Chardonnay Noir. Too, and Chardonnay, though. too. Right, right, right. And Those so, are the two grapes of Burgundy, and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And it's also a way of saying, I'm cool. I'm this cool. wine has a little Burgundianness yes. to it. Although yeah. if they're really cool, they'd say it has essence of Bourgogne. Yeah, well, that's what they would say, but they would then not be cool. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we got to bring that word back because uh, there's a lot that's implied in that. But, and they, ignore them. It, it, just like the RS guys, <laughs> yeah, just ignore them. A Burgundian wine with RS. All right. That is it for another round of Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Bassini. And thank you to Capital Public Radio for letting us use the studios. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. You can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free with just a click. And if you learn anything today, we hope it's that wine is good for any holiday or any day. And so are we. And so are we. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us. Mm-hmm.